Ian Power with Steve Seaborn, the little contractor, today on the Home Discovery Show. We'll talk trees, falling and standing trees. We'll talk grubs, June bugs, European Schaefer beetles. Wim Vanderzam will join us in just a couple of minutes. Wanted to follow up on a story that we did a couple of weeks ago, but we've had, uh, well, we've been inundated with messages, email, and the like, and on our Facebook page, the Home Discovery Show Facebook page, about asbestos and where to find it in your home and what to do about it, Steve, when you do find it. The most important thing is is uh, know that you're dealing with a known carcinogen, so don't disturb it. it that, that could be... Uh, simply a matter of you're in your crawl space or in your attic space or something where there's some, for example, heating ducts and you're moving some boxes around. Just be careful not to bump the pipes and disturb that that asbestos um, coating that's on the ta- on the on the ducts. If you can see it, if you can identify what it is, or if you are doing a renovation, uh, don't just blindly get a power sander from the rental store and start sanding through that old sheet vinyl that's on there to get down to the hardwood floor. You're gonna you're gonna stir it up and get into there. If you're in doubt of what something may or may not contain, particularly because you had an older house, then call somebody. Okay, so what's the, the cutoff date? Do, do you have a date? It seems to, we always hear these dates about when you might have uh, asbestos in your flooring or in your wallboards. Uh, uh, it seems to change every, what's the latest number now? The last holdout seemed to be the gypsum wallboard compound, the, the drywall mud. And that was up to 1988 is when they, they demanded that it stop being commercially available. And by 1990 is when the cutoff, they thought that all the old material would be gone. So we just kind of call it 1990. And uh, you should be safe for any home that is older than, or sorry, younger than 1990. Question I would have, if I, if I want to put in a wall switch into my wall board, let's I'll call it drywall, because mm-hmm. everybody understands what that means. Sure. And I start cutting into it, and let's just say it's 1980 vintage. Yeah. Am I at risk of uh, contaminating myself? In your specific example, probably more than anything else, because where your light switches are going to go, they're about the four-foot mark, which is right in the center of a sheet good. So you, if there is any contamination, you're hitting the bullseye right where that spot may be. Hmm. Now, understanding the exposure, the amount of exposure, uh, how long you're in that area, how much dust you're creating... Uh, is certainly something to be considered as well. If you're going to do 50 of those across the house, your exposure is, of course, a lot more than one. So your your risks are, are limited, but you are right in the bullseye if you're doing that specific example. should be wearing a mask anyway, I would think. Abs- and, and, absolutely. And those standard masks that you buy at the hardware store, the lumber store, the, the building store, whatever, are do they do anything? Do they help? No, not for asbestos <laughs> fibers. They are, you know, an N95 is what they call mask. It's not even a mask. Actually, what you should be using is a respirator. Okay. And is that special equipment or does everybody have that in their home? No, that is, uh, most people have a little mask because they're worried about dust and things. But masks are very important to know what it is you're doing, fumes versus fibers. And so when you're dealing with asbestos particularly, it is a respirator, which is, you know, it's a $100 investment. So if I want to be sure that I don't have asbestos in either the flooring or in the, the wallboard, uh, what do you want to do? How do, I, how do I ensure that? There's companies available to call. Uh, they're, they're professional testing companies. Laboratories will send somebody out to take samples. So, for example, you're, you're wanting to do a renovation and you're going to take out that wall. Well, then you identify the wallboard that's on there or you want to sand the floors. So wherever you're doing something, where there is a, where there has been historically a known component of asbestos, then that's when you call somebody in. So we can call a professional asbestos abatement company, 
or the laboratories will send out somebody to take a sample and uh, safely take a sample and have it tested. Is that expensive and does it take a long time? It's very quick. Uh, the, the testing procedure is really based on how long or how fast you want your results. If you can get a 24-hour response, that costs more than, say, a seven-day turnaround. And, and really, it's not a lot of money. It ranges. I think the most we've paid for, for a 24-hour service has been $100. Now, you're, uh, you have to work as a contractor with WorkSafe. As a homeowner, I don't know what my responsibilities are to protect myself from this sort of thing. Right. WorkSafe is our um, governing body. We are mandated to protect the workers. Um, A homeowner really doesn't have any sort of laws. They're not bound by anything. Just simply the education to know that you are dealing with something that is a known carcinogen and your exposure, particularly to someone who uh, has respiratory problems or who is aged, will be greater, and because of the latency of the the whole timing of it, you may not know that you're sick until 30 to 50 years later when it's too late. Mm -hmm. So if you are planning any kind of renovation, whether it be a small job or a a big job, you probably want to have all this figured out beforehand. It's part of the planning process. It is, and and unfortunately it is... um, it's it's a necessity because it may not affect you or somebody today. It could it could hang around and affect and uh, stay in the soft fibers of the home for the future uh, purchaser. It'll affect animals. It can affect children. Uh, it's just it's better to ask. Now, if you're buying wallboard today or flooring today, because flooring is another place where it's often found, do you you don't need to worry about that? Um, not not. If you go out today and you buy some of that, no, you're not worried about it. There was a brief period where there was, because the closed-loop system of the gypsum uh, recycling program, there was a brief period where there was some contamination. Okay. I asked that because you left a note about uh, don't vacuum. Well, exactly, because now you're sucking up all that and you're putting it into your vacuum. And do you, How are you going to get rid of the vacuum? Because the fibers, they'll stick in there. So. Well, sure. And if you don't have the proper filter, what comes out of the back of the, the vacuum? Absolutely correct. All, all that stuff. Uh, anything else that we should know? Uh, just, you know, we, I say who to call. So so who are you going to call? Where are you going to go? WorkSafe does have a website that they manage and they run. It's called hiddenkiller.ca. You could also check out uh, your local uh, local city department as far as any kind of environmental uh, agencies. Hazardous Materials Association of BC, it's got some resources. Anybody, you can just you can simply type in asbestos in, in testing, but the best place to start is with your local authorities. We changed our clocks and lost an hour. And the storms of this late winter continue. Another one set for the south coast today. Mike Nugent from Bartlett Tree Experts will join us in just a moment as we continue on the Home Discovery Show from News Talk 980 CKNW. Ian Power, along with Steve Seaborn, the little contractor. Another brutal storm hit the south coast this past week, and a fatality reported when a large hemlock fell and crashed through the roof. Tens of thousands of BC Hydro customers had to deal with power outages. And given the level of drought last summer and the still-to-be-fully-understood effects on trees that that might have had, and a storm forecast for this afternoon... We've got some questions about things to look for around your home. So we've asked Mike Nugent, a certified arborist and tree risk assessment certified uh, gentleman from Bartlett Tree Experts. He's the manager in Delta, and he's here in studio with us this morning. Nice to have you with us. Yeah, thanks, Ian. My pleasure. 
for any homeowner or condo owner or apartment dweller with sizable trees on their property, they might be concerned, wondering how safe they are from a tree falling onto their property, house, their car. In Steve's case, he's worried that the tree's going to fall on his hot tub, and that's going to take away his nighttime pleasure, uh, especially given what would seem to be Around here, we're getting more storms. They seem to be more intense. More trees seem to be falling over. Are there signs for someone like myself? I like trees, but I don't know much about the science. Are there things that I can look for that will show some potential risks? Yeah, certainly. Uh, Generally speaking, the overall health and appearance of a tree uh, should be monitored by the homeowner, especially if they're not having an arborist, a certified arborist, buy with any regularity. Uh, any significant uh, change in the appearance of the tree would indicate change in the health. And a number of factors can affect health and, and, and make that quite variable, uh, especially, as you mentioned, storm events becoming more significant. Uh, I like to associate those to climate change. Mm-hmm. Climate change also brings about drought conditions. And anytime we stress an individual tree, especially a mature tree that has had a certain way of life and known uh, variables have remained fairly consistent. We change those variables, uh, whether it be available water or high wind events, and uh, a tree becomes more stressed, it becomes more liable to decline in health, and therefore in high storm events, certainly more liable to fail uh, completely at the base or certainly uh, its limbs or stems. Now you have in your background, in your education background, uh, a, a good deal of climate studies. Uh, what is your degree? It's a Bachelor of Science in Agroecology. Okay, and that is, is, as I understand it, that has a lot to do with climate, does it not? It certainly does. It takes a systems approach at evaluating, uh, well, foremost food production systems, but any uh, uh, really ecological system from a systems approach. So you look at everything, whether it be economic factors and variables, uh, ecological, and of course, um, uh, financial as well. So, uh, yeah. Certainly. We're a home improvement show, so we don't want to get into the, the, the political debate on climate change, but I'd be interested in your views on uh, somebody who studied climate, who's somebody who works in the outdoors with, with trees and, and nature all of the time. How do you, what's your take on this concept of climate change? It's certainly happening. Uh, I'm not a very old man. I'm 35 now, but I grew up in Richmond, and even in my lifespan, I've seen significant changes uh, with the weather patterns. For example, not having any significant snow now for four to five years. Mm-hmm. And uh, number one, it's disappointing to me, but also uh, certainly registers strongly that something significant and globally is happening here. And like I said, mature trees certainly feel the brunt of that when they've had certain guaranteed uh, amounts of water or whatever it may be. You change things quite dramatically in, from their regard, and uh, they get quite stressed. And, mm-hmm. uh, and that certainly has an outcome, for example, in these recent storms, especially the storm in August of last year, where we experienced a lot of major failures. Yeah. Am I correct in saying that if we can anticipate uh, a drier summer again this year, that our best defense might be to get those trees uh, and the ground underneath as wet as possible, deep down as possible, this spring? Right now, the water holding capacity uh, across the region is is at a maximum. 
uh, what is recommended through the late spring, early summer, and summer months is good deep waterings at, at regular intervals, certainly not daily, but let's say weekly. Uh, of course, watering restrictions come into play in that case, and in many cases we're not able to supl- supply those mature trees with what they need, uh, but certainly deep, regular waterings as opposed to small amounts uh, more regularly. Are there certain types of trees uh in this area, in this part of the world, that are more susceptible to wind damage than others? Every species of tree has its own what we call failure profile or or characteristic form of failure. And, uh, for example, you mentioned the hemlock tree uh, out east of Vancouver here that failed uh, in the recent storm. Uh, They're shallow-rooted species, and they tend to experience some form of root rot uh, over time, of our three dominant native conifers, being the Western Red Cedar, Douglas fir, and Hemlock, it is the weakest and shortest lived of the three. Uh, you tend to uh, experience some visual signs of health decline with Hemlocks, and it's quite natural. Uh, they also suffer from some insect pests and have, uh, unfortunately, some relationships with fungal pathogens that can lead to root rot and stem decay as well. Uh, so certainly every species has its own set, uh, or let's say profile, in regards to failure. Um, But really, when it comes down to it, there's no such thing as a safe tree. And Mm -hmm. every tree, especially those significantly sized and aged trees, within proximity to houses, vehicles, uh, schoolyards, any targets, uh, should be inspected with some regularity for these uh, visual signs of of decline in health and potentially uh, structural destabilization. Often, now you're in the business, obviously, uh, Bartlett tree experts, well-known in this area, and you're in the business of, of doing this. But for, uh, as a, a word of caution or advice to a homeowner right now or somebody who has trees on their properties, how often should they, you say, be inspected, but how often, and, and can I do my own inspection or do I really need to have an arborist on site? As I said earlier, uh, every homeowner should be proactively keeping an eye on their trees. And what I mean by that is just noting any significant change in either the growth pattern, the appearance, uh, the the density of the canopy, because a a reduction in the overall density of canopy means that the tree is not adequately supplying its foliage, its leaves and branches, with the water and nutrients necessary to sustain good, healthy growth. So yes, on the ground, every homeowner should be proactively assessing their trees. And uh, certainly beyond that, having a certified arborist by to inspect any significant trees is recommended whether or not the owner is looking at their own trees. So yes, having a certified arborist is the only way to to provide any certainty as to the trends or or general health of your trees. And just because a tree is considered high risk doesn't mean it can't be saved. Exactly. There's certainly many different forms to manage trees. Uh, If a tree is deemed high risk, in that case, it actually... uh, usually recommends removal. Uh, within the International Society of Arboriculture, there's a, a matrix system with which we come up with ratings of hazardous trees. And to get a high-risk rating actually has to mean that a lot of the variables are lined up to point towards this tree is just simply too risky to manage, not worthwhile uh, to promote uh, retention and pruning. Now, that's not always the case. And number one, a tree to be uh, rated as a high risk has to be within proximity to certain targets. Okay. Once again, homes, uh, high high traffic areas, whether pedestrian or vehicle. And, uh, you know, if a tree, a tree cannot be rated high risk unless there are targets present. Okay. If a tree has to be removed from a property, 
uh, it, regardless of the municipality, or maybe it's different from municipality to municipality, do you need a, a permit? Yes, essentially every municipality in Greater Vancouver now does have a permitting process in place. Uh, I myself, I generally worked in the southern Metro Vancouver area, so I can't speak for all municipalities, but New Westminster has recently uh, come up with some new bylaws of their own, uh, whereas for myself, Vancouver, Delta, Richmond, they do have some rigid bylaws in place. Uh, Number one, for the protection of trees and Mm -hmm. to manage the urban uh, forest uh, for beneficial reasons. Um, but certainly a permit does have to be issued even when a tree is high risk uh, or even completely dead. A permit is mandated. Is now the time to start thinking about planting trees or is this not a good season for it? Yeah, no, we're certainly well within the optimal window for planting trees. Uh, anytime uh, we say October through uh, April is most optimal. Uh, if you get in towards May and June, especially with uh, you know the trend of having hotter, drier summers, uh, you do run the risk of that tree not establishing itself as well. Uh, right now, many species, even though they may not have emerging leaves and stems at this point, root initiation has started. Mm-hmm. So if you were to, to pick up a tree in a container and there's no activity in the canopy, you'll find nice new white roots developing in the container. So it's best, if possible, to manipulate those roots uh, while planting so that any new growth for the season is going to go towards uh, good developmental growth uh, as opposed to shedding some of that new root growth, you know, in a month or two's time. Most difficult question I'm going to ask you today before we say so long. What is your favorite tree? My favorite tree is uh, a Japanese umbrella pine, uh, Cyadopides verticillata, and I fell in love with that one at UBC studying uh, agroecology and uh, a friend of mine out there, Douglas Justice of the UBC Bot Gardens, uh, was teaching plant ID. And I asked Douglas, uh, how is this tree propagated? And he mentioned cuttings for the most part, seedlings number two, but a seedling will take about three years to get three inches tall. So I'm proud to say I have a 15-year-old Cyadopides verticillata uh, that's about up to my chest. We got to go. Thank you so much. That's a great story. Uh, we're going to have you back if you'd be still kind to join us again. Mike Nugent, who's a local manager and a certified arborist with Bartlett Tree Experts in Delta, Wim Vanderzam. We're going to look at the other side, the, the ground level of what's happening in your yard next on the Home Discovery Show from News Talk 980 CKNW. Ian Power in with Steve Seaborn, the little contractor. Wim Vanderzam, well known throughout the province for his extensive horticultural expertise. And he's also a best-selling author, Just Ask Wim, Down-to-Earth Gardening Answers, a book you can buy in store or online. And I can tell you, no home should be without this book. And I mean that sincerely. I often reference the book uh, anytime that I've got to deal with something in the garden. And Wim is also the owner and operator of the Artnap Plant Land in Port Coquitlam. It's nice to have you on the air with us, Wim. Uh, when we spoke the other day, I told you I was concerned about this growing problem of chafer beetles. And, and as we get closer to spring, I'm wondering, uh, uh, and, and just a suggestion, I think you started to shudder a little bit because uh, uh, this is a real problem in the lower mainland. And I'm just wondering if maybe I should start a GoFundMe page to help out. <laughs> Might not be a bad idea. What's uh, what's the whole what's the what's going on with this thing? This is an invasive species, and is is it for that reason that it's this out of control? Yeah, well, there's a, there's numerous reasons it's out of out of control. I mean, this this beetle arrived on pallets or something uh, from a ship that arrived in New Westminster, and uh, I guess uh, there was a pregnant um, 
chafer beetle on that on that ship uh, or larvae or something. Anyway, they got into our society, and um, and uh, why they have spread so fast to the lower mainland is because they, uh, each female chafer beetle, uh, she lays 300 eggs. Woo. So you can imagine, multiply that annually, um, it just has grown exponentially and, and it is a now a major uh, problem in the lower mainland, that's for sure. Well, they seem to be a real uh, delicacy for crows and skunks and raccoons and other uh, little crawl, creepy, crawly things and pests that seem to invade our neighborhoods with these June bugs or Schaefer beetles. Uh, uh, I guess, they're, uh, are they as good tasting as, as, as these animals would suggest? actually tried one myself and am not really planning on it. <laughs> what, they what, are a, a nice big larvae and that's what the crows and skunks and raccoons are going after because it is a good meal for them. Um, I think you probably noticed crows a little more healthy over the past couple of years. Oh yeah. They pick away at the lawn until they can find um, a chafer beetle larvae underneath the ground and they can actually hear them under the ground or feel Really? Them. Yeah, so it's uh, so they know where they are, and and they know that they're in lawns, and um, and that's why they sort of are are tearing apart our lawns and making an absolute mess of they have so many lawns in the Lower Mainland. Is this a good time to to deal with it? I'm thinking now, uh, people are starting to to get their aerates out and and starting to to get those plugs out of the ground and. Uh, make uh, the, 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 the grass or lawns uh, ready for the season. Uh, what can we do about the, the Schaefer beetle, or is this not the time? And they're June bugs for a reason, I guess. Uh, it's because, I guess, the biggest problem is in June, but what do you suggest? Well, you can't do much now, but, and, and you make some good reference there, like, you know, it's time to aerate, it's time to fertilize, time to lime, all of that, very important, and this is the time you would do that. And actually, um, it, it's interesting, um, the chafer beetle female adult, when she's going to lay her eggs, she actually shies away from better maintained lawns, lawns that look better, that are nice and full and lush, mm-hmm. because she has to lay her eggs into soil. So a, a nice cropped, uh, tight, healthy lawn is actually difficult to get to, difficult for her to get to the soil to lay her eggs. So she'll actually go to a lesser lawn. And so if you see your neighbor or you have that nice lawn, and your neighbor has a lousy lawn, um, you might notice that he's, he was uh, ravaged with, with chafer beetle uh, damage and, and yours maybe not. So it is, it is helpful to keep a good healthy lawn to actually prevent the problem. But there's nothing really you can do right now other than get your lawn into shape. There's nothing you can do to, to kill off or eliminate the chafer beetle larvae that are in the soil. They're coming to uh, uh, the next part of their life cycle um, in a little while, May, they'll start emerging from the lawn as the adult. The female beetle flies around, flutters around, big floppy little beetle. And, and they go into the tra- trees and mate. Mm. And in, in May, they're mating early June. Uh, and, then, um, and then sort of in June, uh, the female goes down to lawns. And you'll notice as well um, the center of lawns. And this is the, the intelligent part about, it, I guess, all, all animals and insects. She goes to the center of lawn because you know, if she lays eggs there, the larvae will sort of uh, start to move them and migrate, and she mm-hmm. wants them to make sure they have enough food so that they survive. So she goes to the center lot, and as they migrate out, they will get, uh, they'll, they'll continue to have the food, which is the roots of the lawn. Uh, That's what they feed on. Okay. But they, they, they basically are going to come out at the end of uh, June, uh, end of June, the, the female chafer beetle. She'll lay her eggs, and then uh, as, they, as they start to 
hatch, these eggs have to uh, mature into this, this, this uh, immature larvae, and that's the time to get control, which is basically that mid-July period um, is the time to sort of uh, take action. Well, we'll have to get you back for that. I'm wondering, uh, somebody suggested that a little less light on the lawn, like, uh, you know, uh, electric light on the lawn might be helpful. Electric light? Yeah, if you have less light, apparently, uh, and I've seen this in my neighborhood where you've got these big patches where they've been dug out underneath a light uh, light standard, for example. Well, they well the beetle will actually migrate to light for sure. Um, so that maybe is why they're uh, attracted to that area and then that lawn because um, they lay eggs at dusk. So so that is something probably uh, they might be attracted to as well. Right. Got to leave it there, Wim, but really do appreciate your time. Thank you, and uh, hope that we can get you back uh, a little uh, little deeper into the gardening season. That's right. We'll get control of these bad guys. <laughs> appreciate it so much. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Wim Vanderzam, uh, again, uh, pick up his book. It's a great read. Just ask Wim, Down to Earth Gardening Answers. Uh, it's been my lifesaver in the garden for, for reference. Uh, we're going to take a break. When we come back, uh, in the meantime, look at the Home Discovery Show Facebook page. But when we come back, uh, guess what? We're going to talk about real estate. That's next on the Home Discovery Show from News Talk 980 CKNW. Ian Power back with Steve Seaborn, the little contractor. This past week, the city of Vancouver released a study that showed vacancy rates in detached homes and stratas uh, and condos. Uh, it turns out that it may just be a tall tale if your story says that vacant properties are the reason for the rapid inflation in residential real estate. Given the number of around 5% of non-occupancy, which is in line with other major cities, there must be something else driving the market. But that may not be enough to turn down the noise. I asked my co-host from Vancouver Real Estate Today and CKNW anchor John Meyer to see what some of the reaction to this is and some of the surprising conclusions. Okay, so we had a bit of a misfire there. Uh, John is standing by. We'll get him in just a second. But we wanted to talk about some of the things that John Meyer had found out from the CKNW newsroom in relation to this story. And he had uh, a conversation with Mayor Gregor Robertson, and uh, I think we're just about ready with that. So we're going to look now again to see what some of the reaction to that study was and uh, the surprising conclusion. CKNW anchor John Meyer, uh, who talked about the, these items yesterday on Vancouver Real Estate Today. And if you missed that, uh, Saturday mornings at 11 a.m. And this is an interesting story because uh, it, it's, it, I think it's going to take the, the gas out of a lot of people's engines when it comes to this whole idea of empty houses. If uh, our rate is the same as any other major city in North America... And then what's what's the beef here? And is it really going to solve any homeless problems? I, I somehow doubt that. Now, I get the whole idea that if you have an empty house on your block or a couple of empty houses, maybe not so much the, the condos because that may not be as noticeable, but it does have some 
effect on the neighborhood, and that could certainly be a concern. We'll take a quick break. We're going to come back. We can open the lines if you want to discuss this or anything else. If you've got a question about a project you're working on at your home, put the little contractor to task. 604-280-9898 or star 9898. We've got a couple of minutes for your call next on the Home Discovery Show from News Talk 980 CKNW. I guess in reference to our earlier conversation, Steve, uh, and it uh, goes something like this. I have a small front yard facing north, and I'm fed up with replacing the grass every year because it turns to moss in the wintertime because there's so little sun. With last year's summer drought and water restrictions, I'd like to have someone come in and replace it with artificial grass. It's a small space. Could you advise me what I should be thinking about and is there a reputable company that can help with these kinds of things? Absolutely. I mean, if you're if you're that fit with having to worry about the moss and it's not getting drainage and there's no sunshine coming in and you want to keep that that putting green looking lawn, you can look at artificial. Absolutely. There's different grades, different kinds. You can make it look like it's the it's the rough part of the of the golf course or even the putting lawn. Lots of different kinds available. Lots of different manufacturers. The important thing is the preparation. You really got to dig down. Uh, and professionals will do this, of And course. as opposed to artificial, why not think of alternative things to, to plant? Clovers or other greens and things that can look really attractive and not necessarily like weeds because this seems to be where, where people are shifting if they want to get away from that perfectly manicured lawn. Yes. Good morning, Ken. Yes. Hello. Hi. Uh, are, are you ready for my question? Yeah, you're on the air. Go ahead. Oh, okay, good. Um, I'm looking at getting a house renovated that was probably built in the uh, 70s or 80s. Okay. And um, I'll get someone in to do the renovations. But how can I how can I determine that they've done it properly, like with the asbestos removal, or and it's not hanging around the fibers? That's a great question. We only have a, a minute here, so I want to give Steve a chance to answer. I'm glad you asked. That's a great question. Uh, the contractor is going to come to do the work. You want to make sure that they are licensed and accredited. You want to ask for the proof of this information. And if failing any of that, you can invite WorkSafe BC to come by and have an inspection. They have to file a report and say they're going to be doing it, and you can follow up with that and make sure that they are doing it correctly and getting it out and their containment is correct. And their license is in a licensed contractor. What type of license is that? The license they will have a license for the for the actual handling and removal of the of the contaminant, as well as uh, normal contractors. Well, make sure they've got a license for the city they're operating in. I see. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Yeah, and Ken, uh, ask all of these questions before you sign any contract with any contractor. I think it's a it's a good point that he's brought up because uh, how can you be certain that your contractor is doing what he or she says they are doing? Right, that, that is a challenge. We face that, uh, and and you can provide all sorts of fake documents, but what it comes down to is a third party. Invite a third party that you that cannot be swayed. So in the case of Ken's renovation example, which I think is a good one, by the way, uh, could he then uh, invite a third-party hazardous material inspector? Is this what you were thinking about? Uh, Well, very simply, I would would go to a governmental authority or an authority that will not charge you. I mean, if you can call in a third party and, and pay them. WorkSafe BC will be happy to send over somebody to, to make sure that it's done correctly. And the contractor will be happy to know that they're doing their diligence as well. So if uh, you're on a job site, and I'm sure this has happened to you, 
where you're dealing with hazardous materials or you've got uh, a, con- a subcontractor perhaps that's handling it and WorkSafe shows up and says, hey, we want to check up on your work. Uh, how do you feel about that? Well, I mean, I, I don't have a problem with it because we do it correctly, legally, safely. Um, some uh, would have a problem with it. There's delays, possibly, but uh, you know, I'm, I'm here for education. I want to make sure that I'm doing it right and for the safety of uh, our workers as well as the homeowner. Yeah. And is this something that the people that work for you, are they concerned about these things? They are because it's uh, it's lost time. And if they lose time, they're not getting paid. Check out the Home Discovery Show Facebook page. Also, this program is podcast at cknw.com. Matt Hyland has been our technical producer today for Steve Seaborn, the little contractor. My name is Ian Power. Stay with us for Vancouver Consumer next on News Talk 980 CKNW.